I don't know about you, but I lived a life before I came to know Jesus. Amen? Some of you didn't say amen, but I know you did because we've talked about it. Nobody comes to Jesus having lived a life of perfection. We come sick and in need of a physician, and Jesus is our healer. He provides all that we need. In spite of the decisions that we made that hurt others, hurt ourselves, and cause a distance between our God and ourselves. We come to Jesus with history. But when we come to Jesus, Jesus gives us a new life. We are regenerated. That is a 50-cent word that means made new. That's what Jesus means when he says, you must be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And being born again means we were born of women, but in order to, be, to go to heaven, we must be born of God. God the Holy Spirit must do a work in our life, and when God does a, holy, a work of, excuse me, when God the Holy Spirit does a work in our life, then it is radical, it is miraculous, and it is eternal. But... That's when the work begins for us. Some of us come to Jesus, and Jesus receives us with gladness and joy and mercy and forgiveness. Amen? Amen. But he doesn't always miraculously deliver us from our habits. He doesn't always miraculously deliver us from our tendencies. He doesn't always deliver us from our history. Sometimes God does this. And we say amen to that. But sometimes in his wisdom, he doesn't, and he wants us to work with him through the things that we did without him years ago. It's not that complicated. You and I today are handling situations that had we made a different decision five years ago, we wouldn't be dealing with. Amen? It is what it is. What I mean to introduce our topic this morning with is this. Regardless of where you are in your walk with Jesus, you need to know that you're no longer a child of darkness. You're a child of light now. He says in chapter 1, if you know the Father and you walk in obedience with the Father, the blood of the Son forgives you of all sins. It covers all your sins, and you have fellowship with those who are in the light. But it doesn't mean you're perfect. That's why the blood of Jesus is there. So what we're talking about today is what this looks like, nuts and bolts. What we're talking about today is the issue that we so often come into contact with throughout the week when we have a good Lord's Day, and then Monday there's traffic on the turnpike. Or somebody says something. Or we read a comment on Facebook. Whatever the case might be. And we are sent toward old tendencies. Because we are now, as my title suggests, children of light living in a world of darkness. So let me introduce you again to our text this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. I've got three simple points for you this morning, the first of which is the command. This is going to be verse 15. The first of which is the command. So if you're ready, say amen. Amen. 
verse 15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not maybe in him. It's not possibly in him. It's not on certain days of the week it's in him. But if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. The command, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's a number of things worthy of note here, but let me begin, though, by saying this. In the Bible, we have essentially two categories. How many? The indicative and the imperative. The indicative and the imperative. The indicative is foundational truth. It's the teaching. It's the lesson. The imperative is the command, and it's based on the indicative. It's not a teaching or a truth, but rather it's the command that flows from the teaching or the truth. So far so clear? So as a point of illustration, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, this is what the word of God says, you shall be holy, imperative. For I, the Lord your God, am holy, indicative. You see that? The command from God to his people is that they must be holy. That's the command. Why? The indicative is because I, the Lord your God, am holy. You see that? So why are we commanded to be holy? Because God in heaven is holy. In our particular case this morning, John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, the next important thing to understand is the meaning of the word world. We learned a few weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 John, that Jesus is the propitiation of the whole world. In other words, Jesus is the means by which God's wrath is appeased against sinners like you and me. When John says that he is our propitiation, but not only ours, but also for the whole world, John is saying that we are, he is not saying, excuse me, that, that we are forbidden to love that world. He is saying, on the contrary, that God does a work of redemption and provision. Nevertheless, what's the distinction between chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 2, verse 15? If God is providing for the world, and yet we are not to love the world, how do we make sense of these things? Well, first of all, it's important to note that just as our words have the ability to stretch or have shades of meaning, so the disciples, like John, used words that could also stretch and have various shades of meaning. This is the case here. Sometimes the word world means people without distinction. God so loved the world. But here we're told not to hate the world, but not to love the world, right? And that is because the shade of meaning is different. Here, the word world represents the anti-God systems and the sinful schemes in which sinful human beings live each and every day. The world represents everything that is anti-Christ, anti-truth, anti-Bible, and therefore anti-Christ. The author writes, do not love the world. 
We aren't to coddle it. We aren't to massage it. We aren't to dress it up so that it looks better actually than it is. We are not to love the world. So when John says this, do not love the world, etc., he isn't teaching Christians to hate people. But he is most certainly telling them to hate the system that compromises and corrupts and condemns human beings and leads people to hell forever and ever and ever. This is an important distinction for you and me to make. God is not going to redeem the world like he's aiming to redeem sinners. He is redeeming sinners right now in this season. And whoever believes in the gospel will be saved. And then there will come a time at the end of time, not in this progressive redemption that we're seeing unfold right now for human beings, but when we see that come to an end, when God will make a new heaven and a new earth, he's not fixing this one. We anticipate that time. We look forward to that time. Between now and then, you need to understand that there's a difference between sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with lost people and hating the world that creates a system that is anti-Christ and anti-God. Hating the system and hating people are not the same thing. We are not Westboro Baptist Church. We don't walk that path. We condemn that path. We condemn their behavior. That's not Christian. That's not godly. We believe that God saves sinners of whom I am chief. When we stop believing that, we start thinking that if we put a Republican president, all the churches will get fixed. We're not not politicians here, church. We believe in regeneration. We believe that God makes people new. Now, constitutionally, I'm a conservative, I have convictions. Sometimes I talk about them, sometimes I don't. When I stand in this pulpit, I don't. Because it's not my convictions that are important. It's God's. This is what comes first. And if we create policies and agendas through politicians and policy makers, that doesn't make us Christians, man. That doesn't mean we love people. What means God has provided for us to change people's lives is the gospel. So we might lean one way or another, and we might think some issues are more important than others, and we can debate and discuss and have conversations about that, but we will never shy away from this. God is in the business of saving people, but he ain't going to save the world. He's going to make a new world. And from now until that time, the climax and pinnacle of his redemptive history, now till that time, we are reaching people for Jesus and knowing that the system is against God and against people's redemption and against the name that is above all names. And that is the point that John is making. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father can't be in them. That's an important distinction to make. So that's our command. That's where we come off of first and foremost. Secondly, we see the reason for the command. 
We've got our command, do not love the world. We understand now what the world represents. We need to love our lost friends and lost family members, and so sometimes they're disagreeable and belligerent and they're hard to tolerate, but we need to pray for them, right? I know you have some of those people. Everybody does. That's the command. Secondly, the reason for the command. Look at verse 15 and 16 together. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life are not from the Father, but are from the world. So, our second point this morning, the reason for the command is broken down smartly and in an organized fashion for us in verse 16. That's what John does. He neatly and smartly organizes his argument for us. He puts down three reasons. How many? Three reasons why we aren't to love the world. I'm going to walk you through these three reasons one at a time. First, we are not to love the world, Christian, because of the desires of the flesh. As we mentioned with the use of the word world, how it can have different shades of meaning, so here is the same case with John's use of the word flesh. He isn't literally talking about the skin on your bones. He isn't talking about the sin, he, excuse me, he is talking about the sin nature that hangs on all of us like a cloak, the evil presence that surrounds all of us in the world, the compulsion to do what is dishonoring to God, even though we know it is dishonoring to God. That's what John means by the desire of the flesh. When the Apostle Paul discusses this very idea, this same thing with the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 5, he writes these words. Listen to it. I say to you, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let me say that again. Walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You notice that there's no neutral ground for the Christian. Martin Luther said, man is like a horse and either the devil is riding him or Jesus is riding him. There's no neutral ground. Either you're living and bringing glory to God or you're not in Christ, in which case it's impossible for you to bring glory to God. Because the first step of bringing glory to God is converting in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 is breaking down for us this idea of desire. And the first thing he talks about is desire of the flesh. And in Paul's writing, as it is in John's, they juxtapose or compare the two things. You are either in the spirit or you're in the flesh. You're either in the spirit or you're in the flesh. Paul continues and he says, because the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit, guess what, are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other and they keep you from doing the things you want to do. You must make a choice each and every day. Will you live a life that is honoring to God and led by the Spirit, or are you going to be dictated by the flesh? Not the skin, 
but the nature of sin in which we live. It's interesting because the word desire, epithumeo in the Greek, it's used 38 times in the New Testament, and it's only used in a positive way, three. So some translations, as the King James does, some translations doesn't, do, do not translate these verses desire, but lust. Now that might be a little misleading for you and me, because if I say to you lust, your mind probably goes towards sexual proclivities. That's what the word lust typically means. But that's really not what John is focusing on here. John really isn't focusing on sexual tendencies or the misuse of sexuality. John is really just talking more generally and broadly. Nevertheless, the word for desire is carrying with it a negative connotation. The desire of the flesh, our tendencies to do things away that is not honoring to God because we're not in the spirit. Secondly, the desire of the eyes. And this is a reference to things that change our mindset, change our attitude, change our focus. Why? Because we've seen it. Because we've seen it. Church, God gave us eyes to use. Some commentators say that this is an illusion. An illusion to what? An illusion to Genesis when it says that Eve saw that the apple looked good to eat. Well, you know what came after that. Eyes are a blessing. Eyes are something that God gave to us to use for his glory and to enjoy what is around us. But when we use our eyes to receive things into our brain and into our souls that aren't honoring to God, it affects us, it damages us, and it compromises our relationship with God. This is probably seen the clearest in our obsessive use of the internet and social media. We can't put down our phones. The average daily use of cell phones is three hours now. So you sleep, what, seven? You go to work, drop the kids, go to school, all that kind of stuff, and somewhere in the course of your day, eating and drinking and socializing and all that kind of stuff, the average is three hours. Now, some of you are like, oh, three hours, that's not that bad, because you're an eight-hour user of cell phone and internet. Nicholas Carr, in a very insightful book that he wrote called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain, writes this, and I quote, when we're online we're often oblivious to everything else going on around us. The real world recedes as we process the load of symbols and stimuli coming through our devices. Can I just put this in the vernacular for you? When you're on your phone, you're a zombie. essentially what it is. And neurologists are doing research on this on a regular basis because there's so much dopamine being released in our brains via the use of internet and cell phones and tablets, etc., that we are overworking our brains. And the things that used to excite us on a regular basis, guess what? 
We're numb now. We're numb. This is particularly relevant when it comes to the use of sexual websites. The popularity of pornography now has escalated to such a high degree that it's basically a public health crisis. We have marriages that are breaking. We have relationships that are breaking. We have people who are suffering because the average age of porn use is like 11 or 12. The devil knows that if he can get our children, they're done. They're done. I deal with people on a regular basis who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s who have been dealing with this for 40 years, man. By the way, there's nothing wrong with a naked body. But it's the misuse of the naked body that's dishonoring to God. God made sexuality to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the safe confines of a marriage vow. We're supposed to have that kind of relationship. Hebrews chapter 13 says, the marriage bed is undefilable. Your marriage bed is a sacred place for you and your wife. It's yours. It's not mine. It's not anybody else's. God has blessed that marriage with healthy sexuality. But the misuse of sexuality is dishonoring to God. In August, Zoom was down. And as you know, we were still Zooming a lot, right? In August, Zoom was down for four hours, and there was over a 7% increase in Pornhub usage for those four hours, which basically means everybody found out Zoom wasn't working, and they opened the next tab. Addiction is so rampant. The misuse of God's sexuality is so pervasive that people are losing their jobs, losing their families. Why? Because of the dopamine addiction they have created in the habits of their life. Now, let me tell you something about Jesus, because he's a deliverer. Some of you may need to hear this today. This is not the last day for you. I am convinced, Paul says, that he who started a good work on you will finish it. You say, Joe, I made the covenant 25,000 times and I failed. Don't quit quitting. Keep going on. Keep pushing forward. Do whatever you have to do to become successful in overcoming the challenges in your life. Because if you will be a child of light, you are not permitted to walk in darkness. God has given us eyes. And he has given us eyes to bless us, not to create holes in our relationship with him. Our eyes are constantly being sought after by stimuli, right? How often do we go to find something on YouTube? Ad. Now the new thing is two ads. I'm waiting for the skip ad button. No, there's one more ad. We're constantly being bombarded by stimuli. It's important that you understand the desire of your eyes can affect your life. 
The next time you feel led to spend hours on your phone or in front of the television, ask yourself, what's about to go through my brain? What's about to go through my soul? We must see, excuse me, we must set our eyes on God's glory in nature. We must set our eyes, so to speak, on the glory of Christ and his resurrection as we close our eyes in prayer to him. We must watch God do his work in our lives through his word, through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and the focus that he's called us to have on loving others. You know why we have so much time to spend on the internet? Because we're not doing anything. We should be busy loving our God and loving our neighbor. We should be busy serving others. And when we're not serving others, we should be serving ourselves by growing. It doesn't matter where you are in this wrestle. If you're in Christ, you can't be lost. Do not quit the fight. The redemption that Christ offers to people is a once and for all redemption. He has paid for it in full. You cannot lose something that you never earned on your first day in Christ. So if you're struggling with something in Christ, struggle. Some days, the only thing you might have is the struggle. Thank God for the struggle. But when you're not struggling, put the phone down, man. Take a walk. Meet with somebody. Have a tactile relationship. Engage in the things that God created you to engage in so that you don't get stuck in the desire of the flesh or the desire of the eyes. Thirdly and finally, John talks about not loving the world for this reason, the pride of life. Now, some uh, translations may say the pride of possessions. Same difference. It's the word bios. It's used to describe property, livelihood, life, possessions. It's a general word. So in any case, what John is essentially referring to is our typical habit of relying on our own talents, our own gifts, our own abilities, and materials to achieve what we want with little reference or reliance upon God. We have a tendency to do that. How often, I don't know, how often do you go home and you say, thank God for this house? How often do you say, God, thank you for my job? How often do you sit at the, at the table at meal and say, God, thank you for this food. Bless it to our bodies. One commentator says this idea is connected to ambition, boasting, contempt of others, blind love of self, and headstrong self-confidence. The pride of life. I can do it myself. Look at all that I've done already. Look at what I've achieved. I don't need God. I've got everything that I need at my hand. The pride of this life or the pride in our possessions is the result of someone not having pride in the next one. When you're in Christ, 
once eternal life is experienced, once our Lord is known, the meaning of this life pales in comparison to the next one. So boasting and being prideful isn't necessarily evil, however. This is an important thing to note. What matters is where your boast is coming from. God speaks in Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That's Jeremiah 9. Paul quotes that verse in Corinthians. And he says, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. So you see, pride is not necessarily wrong. Boasting isn't necessarily wrong. The question is, from where does your boasting come? John is saying that we shouldn't boast in life, but instead we should boast that we know God, that we know his son, Jesus Christ, and that everything that we have is from him, a gift by his grace. And finally, we have the consequences of these two very diametrically opposed paths. Let's read the text again in full. Verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If any, anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, or possessions, is not from the Father. This is from the world. Verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Finally, our last point this morning, the consequences. The consequences of what? The consequences of two separate contrasted lives. One redeemed and given purpose and meaning in Christ. And one which is rooted in the world's evil system of meaninglessness and temporality. The world is passing away with its desires, John says. It won't last. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So many of our decisions are based on immediate temporal fixes, right? Immediate temporal fixes. Say amen if you can identify with any of these. Maybe we lose our tempers because we get mad and we refuse to practice self-control. I'll say amen to that one. But don't laugh. I got one for you too. Maybe we get sexually involved with someone because we refuse to put up healthy boundaries in our relationship. Maybe we get drunk because we've had a rough day and, and we deserve, we deserve it. Maybe we mistreat somebody because they've made decisions in their lives that we don't necessarily agree with. We're not going to tell them, but we're going to treat them in such a way that we let them know we don't like them. We have this way of seeing things that is so temporal 
so immediate. But all of this results from a faulty perspective of reality that fails to honor God as our Lord. The world is passing away, John says. In fact, he puts that in the present tense. He doesn't say it's going to pass away. He doesn't say it's already passed away. He says it's passing away, which means as John speaks, the world is passing away. It's happening. One commentator says, and I love this, there is no future in worldliness. We can't play down the effects of immediate temporal decisions. On the contrary, this is exactly what John is getting us to realize, namely that all the decisions that we make have consequences, and those consequences can be eternal. We must realize something if we haven't already. Decisions made in time have eternal consequences. Friends, where do you want to place your joy? Where do you want to place your satisfaction? In the world, which is passing away and is anti-God and anti-Christ? Or do you want to place your joy in the Savior who loves you, who has promised you eternity. Each and every single day, you and I have a decision to make. Will we exhaust ourselves for the eternal, or will we be exhausted by the world? Jesus said something similar to what John is saying here in Matthew 23, 35. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You see, we live as if the words of Jesus are going to change if we go a little faster. But the words of our Lord will never pass away. Heaven and earth will, but his word will not. The sooner we submit to him, the sooner we bring him glory, the sooner we live lives that bring him worship and praise, the sooner we're going to be satisfied. The sooner we're going to have joy. The Bible never says that we should live our best lives now contrary to popular opinion. In fact, the Bible assures us that we will most certainly not have our best life now because God has our best life hidden in Christ in heaven. We will have our best life, but it won't be now. So when we live our lives, are we making wise decisions financially with our material, with our calendar, with our energy? Are are those things reflecting a fact that we have all of our interests and love and passion in eternity? Or are we living like, man, everything here on earth is so amazing, I don't even want to go to heaven. I think there are a lot of Christians that think that way. I know a lot of Christians that ask me, will there be this in heaven? Will will there be that in heaven? And will heaven have this? And will heaven that? Sometimes I just go, "You, you know what the most important thing is? And they go, what? I go, Jesus is in heaven. All this other stuff doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Take all that stuff from me. I want Jesus. Give me Jesus. Now, all the other stuff, great. If not, okay. But I am certain that Psalm 16, verse 11 says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I know that when I am in glory, I will never be dissatisfied. I am not going to allow the things of this life to derail me from the plan that God has for us in eternity. 
How do you feel? How do you think? Are you living your life in such a way that you go through things in the flesh with your eyes and the desires or pride that is associated with life and you call it in check? Or do you just indulge it? Do you entertain it? Listen, this world is temporary. I want to share with you a few things that you might find interesting. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter calls Christians elect exiles. Elect exiles. Those whom God chose and are now foreigners in this world. How about Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14? Here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city to come. Jeremiah 29 is an amazing prophetic word. In Jeremiah 29, the people are in Babylon. They are being disciplined by God, removed from their land. And God says, send a letter to the people. And he says, what do you want me to write? And he says, seek the good of the community in which you live. The idea being, we have something else to look forward to. Amen? Christians should be loving on their cities and loving on their communities in a way that reflects the fact that they care for it in a way that reflects the fact that God cares for it. We should be doing good each and every day for the people around us, including the city in which we live. That's a prophetic word. Seek the good of the city in which you live. And we're not going to change it. We're not going to make it a Christian city. That's not biblical. It's not going to happen because it's in the world. But we can live in such a way that we bring people's eyesights off of the world and onto the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ. Church, we have so many issues that we face today, and so many of them are symptoms of the decisions that we've made. We've sort of arrived at this dystopian period in 2021 a period when people make decisions for immediate gratification. And they're facing hell because of the consequences of these things. Terrible decisions that are being made on a regular basis. We're ending lives in the womb because of decisions that were made. We're hormonally changing people because of decisions that are being made. I know pediatricians that are leaving the practice because the government wants people changed. The transgender issue is high on their list of priorities. We are radically altering our view of history and being surprised at the decisions and ramifications of such a change. We are enforcing unconstitutional laws because of decisions that are being made in the favor of certain people. On the other hand... There are those who are focused on eternity and on the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be focused on doing the will of the Lord who has called us and saved us and equipped us to be the Christian men and women he's called us to be. The question is, can we reflect on the life that we lived before we met Jesus? And under the realization that he has forgiven us of so much, can we hate the system but offer forgiveness to those who are trapped in it? 
We are simply vessels. Paul says, jars of clay. The message we have is so incredibly important. It's eternally important. But we're not important. We're just cracked pots. But God can do great things through us. God can do great things in us. God can do great things around us. But God will not do those things in the system of the world because God is calling us to hate that system, not to love it, but to love the people who are in it. And we are being called on a regular basis, day in and day out, friends, to help people see who are obsessed with the news, who are obsessed with the headlines, who are obsessed with the captions, that none of that matters. All of this is going away. The world will not last. And when this world is done, each and every man, woman, and child will face the Lord who will be seated on a great white throne. And every man and woman and child, it says, will give an account for their life. I don't want to give an account for my life. I want Jesus to go, he's with us. Do you want, do you want that or do you want to give the account? I, listen, this is the gospel. In chapter 2, he, John says, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about the books being opened because our name is in the only book that really matters, and that's the book of life. Is I see your name here. Come on in. Welcome home. And it's not going to be about what we did. It's going to be about what Jesus did.